you're listening to Passion Pod number 43 with Tristan Bernays. So, Tristan Bernays, your main thing is acting. Well, it's funny you say that because I think my, my main thing isn't acting anymore, really. It's sort of shifted. Ooh, okay. So, so, so what, what, what am I going to describe you? I kind of go writer. as a writer performer. And I do act, but like basically, so, you know, I trained as an actor. And as soon as I left drama school, I went into production for two and a half years because I didn't really like acting. Uh, I was very disillusioned by the whole thing because drama school is every stereotype you imagine. And it, it drives you a bit mad. And I don't regret doing it at all. In fact, it was really important for me to learn. Sometimes you have to do things that are hard. Yeah. And in a funny way, I've sort of come back to it now in my own terms. So basically, when you're in your early 20s, you are a bundle of nerves and they think the world is terrifying and scary and, and you sort of don't know what to do with yourself. So you spend a lot of time trying to work it out, which is terribly difficult when you look at your parents' generation. Like my dad had a house and a wife and a you know a job and a career by twenty two. Don't it makes me want to be sick. No, of my course shoes. it's it's something we can never have as this generation. You know, especially if you're in a, any sort of entrepreneurship, whether it's artist or you know plumber or, or cheesemaker, anything you do that's your own job, you are having to take that huge risk. When you're an actor, you sort of you don't have any drive of your own career. Basically, other people control it. Exactly, and it's right. also they control you on stage, and they tell you where to go, and they tell you what to do, and that's all part of being an actor. And you have to kind of try and find a way of bringing your own special parts to show through your performance. But I never really liked that. I liked the bigger picture. So I did production two and a half years, and I decided to try out all this other stuff because I thought I needed some backup things. I thought I wanted to work in theatre, but I want something stable. So I worked in marketing. I worked in development I worked in um, stage management and just admin and all these different things but after a while I was like it's, it's just an office job in a really fun environment with fun people but it's an office job you're not making stuff and there was a point I was doing the 9 to 5 at Soho Theatre and rehearsing and performing in two shows in rep then straight away after that I was doing the nine, same 9 to 5 and producing two shows in rep and I kind of thought well, I shouldn't be doing the nine-to-five then because I clearly don't want to, so I'm well, sort of jacking in. So were you doing acting throughout the nine-to-five-y stuff? Or At the you, end of it, yeah, because I'd, found, I'd got back there on my own terms. Every now and then you do a show which completely puts you off acting. I've done two. Like I did one which was a, a Christmas show and uh, we were performing in a 250-seat grade one listed venue on the South Bank and we had an average of eight audience members. Oh, my God, that makes me want to be... Oh, my oh God, it was terrible. terrible. And that was my first post-drama school job. Then I did one a few years ago which was an all-male Shakespeare touring around the country. It's a brilliant show. But it was a really fucking tough tour. We were making the set, a four-ton steel set, putting it up and taking it down every day. 84 shows over 64 venues. Wow. And it was mad. And uh, by the end of it, I got real sick. I got glandular fever. And like one time I passed out on stage. And I was like, I don't want to do this. So I started writing. When you're pursuing something that you love, to kind of keep check of yourself, it's quite a hard thing to think, hang on, this isn't quite what... I signed up it's, for here, or it's not giving me what I want. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's easy when you're standing in a lady's dress in the rain in the middle of Somerset and it's pissing down and you're like, this isn't what I signed on for. <laughs> but it is hard on reflection to go, that's what I thought I was always going to do. But in actual fact, you get to where you wanted to get to, which is being creative, through very circuitous routes. So you find, actually, when I started writing, I had access to this creative voice that was really exciting and I got to call the shots, I get to tell the story. So when I started writing, my big thing is, I'm a, I'm a big kid at heart and I love sci-fi and horror and westerns and thrillers and genre stuff i love that and no one does it in theater for some reason it seems to be the exclusive currency of of cinema and i thought bullshit i think i can definitely do that in the theater so i did my first play was a horror i sort of moved away a bit from that because you know i found other stuff i want to do but the second one was a a ghost story then was a sci-fi and then i got to the bread and the beer which was sort of the first piece that really kind of got me known a bit um, and that was sort of a fantasy, I suppose you'd call it, but within a very theatrical tradition. Like, and what was great was I was calling the shots in these stories. I was choosing what to write about. And I'd made Bread and the Beer because it was a one-man show. It was very easy to do, so I had to be practical about it. 
and I also did the bread and the beer because I was like, I want to act again. I miss acting. I miss acting. I don't miss being an actor. Tell us just quickly um, a bit more about the bread and the beer. Saw it the other night and I bloody loved it. She bloody it. loved it. Listeners at home. Everybody and he's just... not even paying me for it. <laughs> um, it was brilliant. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. It... It's basically the idea is that it's, um, it's a storytelling show about the ancient god John Barleycorn, who is the British Bacchus. I mean, he's just this wonderfully vibrant, anarchic figure. And he's a real god that we used to worship in pre-Christian times. And I, I was looking at the world we live in and it was this very grey, nine to five, drab world. And I kind of thought we'd forgotten all these sort of wonderful, dark, mysterious stories. And then I found this character of John Barleycorn. I was just like, he, he's just wonderful. So a this, real G. So the, exactly. The idea is that he gets woken up after thousands and thousands of years of sleeping and he discovers this city which is just glass and steel and concrete and dull nine to five life and he's just like nah I'm not having any of this and he goes on this mad sort of party with all the city boys and girls but the whole thing is is a one man show but it's written in iambic pentameter it's an epic poem for performance and I wanted to go back to those old traditions like Beowulf and Paradise Lost and this beautiful culture and tradition we had which we, we still do in the form of Shakespeare and things like that but no one's making much new work in that form so I wanted to re-examine it yeah. and Bread and the Beer very much was something that had to come out of me it was a feeling I had and basically I went on a year and a half bender and came out at the end of it with this play um, that's so interesting you took time out and that that's what because yeah. it's all about that sort of yeah anarchic wrestling so it's so yeah. teary it's about kind of knowing that it's okay like I, th I genuinely think every now and then the reason we had this god John Barleycorn is because every year we had to go mental dance and have sex and just go wild and the next morning go right got that out of systems Let's get on with the life. life. And the problem is in this world we live in now. We don't have any of we that. Don't have bring him back. We bring him back. I was going to ask you actually, it's quite autonomous, a lot of this recent stuff. Is yeah. that the right word? You know, it's quite solitary. Yes, yes. When you're coming to then engage with a director. Oh, it's real hard. It's real. Like, <laughs> I've had to learn very quick because I'm quite stubborn. That makes it difficult though with what you're doing. It does, very much does, and I've had to learn not to be, and I think there are times when you can go, yes, I'm right to be stubborn, and there's times when you go, no, I'm just being a stubborn mule. And I've had to curtail that. And trust other people, that's the hardest part, is trusting people with your work. Well, that's the thing, because when it's you've invested so much of your yeah. time and your energy, your yeah. soul into this it's, stuff. It's emotional, it's financial, it's kind of like, you're like, this is a big fucking deal. And you kind of have to trust people, and they're going to do it justice. And often they do, and it's just knowing to find the right people. So I've been lucky enough, I've never worked with anyone in any of my work where I feel like they have screwed it up. They've always done a great job. Is that through people that you know that you've met through the work you've done yeah. thus far? Is that kind of advice so, that you give? Yeah, yeah. It's all, a big, it's all a big sort of collective community and you have to get out there and meet people. Although the writing itself is very solitary, I think it's really important to be as out there as possible in a sense of like you're meeting people, you're engaging and just be as shameless and as friendly as possible. And you don't want to be pushy, but you, you've obviously got to be honest about what you are and what you do. But the balance between, yeah, the solitary writing process, yeah. how you go from being, yeah, quite involved and engaged in creating something which is totally by yourself, yeah. to then going and being this. Quite hard, I think, of certain well, people. Do, I think the thing you do is you write the thing, then you give it to someone to read, because the worst thing you can do is write it and then do nothing with it, because in fact, it's not a piece of work until someone else reads it, in the same way that it's not a piece of art until someone else views it. Art cannot be private. You know, if people want to write stories on their own, then that's fine, it's lovely, of course, but it's not art in the sense that we would call sort of like theatre or Because it art. needs an audience. Yeah, it needs an, art needs an audience. Uh, and that audience can be of one or a thousand or whatever, but it needs the audience, so you get it out there. So I'm basically fine directors who I think are interesting, who might like my work, and their friends and colleagues and stuff, and I often you'll sort of be bigging it up for a couple of months. So for example, with the director I'm working at the Mo on a piece and we'd been talking about the piece 
before I'd started writing it. And then I started writing it and he was continually interested and involved and I sent him the first draft and he got more interested and more involved so we're sort of working together on that now. And then they bring people on. So with The Bread and the Beer, for example, I didn't bring on anyone except Sophie, the director, and she brought on Luke, the producer. It was great. And she also brought on the designer, the video designer, the sound designer. And you just find a couple of people. And, that you and connect do. with. Once you're famous, it's easy because you're established. But establishing yourself is, is incredibly hard because no one wants to take a risk. Especially in this climate, no one wants to take a financial risk or an artistic risk. So you have to basically try and find ways of going, the risk is totally worth it. And often it's risking a lot of yourself. It's self-confidence, a lot of this, isn't it? Or self-belief. Because the risk, you've got to really believe in what you're doing in order to feel feel confident yeah. enough to pitch this the, stuff. The way I think about it is I, I don't want to be 70 and say I never did it. You know, we're all going to live to about 70, roughly. I don't want to get to 70 and go, I never went there, I never did that, I never tried this. Um, and there's lots of things I won't have done by the end of my life. And that would be things like financially or economically or geographically. You know, there are things you just can't do, but there are things you like, I could do that if I just took the risk. So, How do you prioritise? You, you have to be you... very disciplined. So, so with the jobs I do, I write. I also do some performing every now and then, acting. So I, at the moment, I'm starting to do reading audio books, which is good work. Um, I also teach. I tutor in the evening, so that's kind of my evenings down. And you have to be very disciplined. You have to say, okay, this is when I teach. This is when I write, this is when I work, and if it doesn't get done, and give yourself deadlines. Like, so, with a, a play I wrote called Eden 2.0, I rented the Soho Theatre studio space for an evening and put down 150 quid, and then invited 100 people. I couldn't not have a piece by then, because I'd look like a dickhead, so I had to have it by then. So set yourself goals and force yourself to meet them. Don't give yourself an option to chicken out. So, for example, I've got to get this, I've just been commissioned to write a play by Theatre Renegade, uh, who are the guys who are publishing... It's all very sort of self-congratulatory. But... The whole thing is, darling, it's an interview. <laughs> You're allowed. That's kind of that's the idea. That's kind of the point. This is the great thing. Just go for it. Okay. It's not awkward where you have to ask me questions back. <laughs> How are you, Emily? <laughs> so the, this company, Theatre Renegade, who is a really cool upcoming theatre company, doing really well considering they're quite young as a company, just commissioned me to write a new piece. And we've agreed on the deadline of the first draft. I've got no option but to get it ready for them. Yeah. Like, I've got no option. So it's about making time. Yes, and being strict with yourself. Not to the point where I think with writing the thing is if it's not working, don't push it. Because uh, that's the thing I imagine. I've never written, but yeah. to be able to sit down in the morning and go, right, today I am writing six chapters. I mean, oh my God. Give yourself a word count. Give yourself a goal. If it's not working, just push through it because the next day it'd be great. For example, Old Fools, which is a play I'm working on, was originally a short play. I'm turning it into a full-length piece. And I remember a couple of weeks back, I was on the second draft. And one day I just went, this is such a piece of dog shit. And it was an entire day of thumping my head against the table and it wouldn't work. And the next day I came in and it just clicked. And it's just going to happen like that. Some and just days, knowing and knowing that it's going to be like yeah. that do you think knowing every day is going to be a new day and what happened yesterday doesn't have to happen today um, and that works both ways so from the artistic side of things you just have to trust that the story will work and sometimes it doesn't work and you come back to it two years later Eden 2.0 which was a sci-fi started as a short play which I wrote in 2010 and I didn't do anything in the two years and then I turned it into a full length play you know like you I, one of my favourite writers Neil Gaiman wrote a book called The Graveyard Book which sort of fantastic kids book and he started writing it and just put it in a drawer and then 10 years later opened up the drawer found it and then later. carried on writing it and finished oh it and it's lovely it's patient you have to be quite patient very patient I mean I'm the most impatient person in the world I'm so impatient that's why I'm working on hang on 
I've got four plays on the go at the moment, all at different levels of development, because one of them might suddenly take off and go really well, but I don't want to just pin all my, my money on that one. I want to sort of keep going with all these different products, so keeping them going and seeing how they progress. And I just, if I'm not doing anything, I get bored, I get depressed, I get ugh, and that's why I have to keep doing stuff, because I love, like, my work is one of the ways I define myself. You know, we spend 50% of our lives working, I don't know what the exact percentage is. Probably more. Yeah, do you really want to be doing data entry? No, you don't. You want to be doing stuff that's exciting, passionate, and of course you have to make sacrifices, of course you have to do things like uh, evening jobs and weekend jobs and, and make sacrifices for the financial and stuff, but you, I would rather do that than just go and do a sloggy nine to five. But you know, you can make it work, it's interesting, having the balance of your tutoring and stuff like that, it's, 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 as you say, it's the balance of all of this stuff. If you want something hard enough, you'll find ways of making it yeah, work. Yeah, it's very think? hard, like you have to be very hard then, and you can't just sort of coast. What know? do you think the biggest challenge of it is? Um, genuinely financial jumping into the corporate world and I, I use that just in a sense of a world where you have an employer a traditional job you have an employee or whatever and, you know maybe it's not as you know it's, it's not actually any more as secure as it once was but it's more secure relatively and you can afford to go right I can take a sick day and I'll still get paid or I'm going to go on holiday for two weeks and I'm still going to get paid or I'm going to get a pension you know um, genuinely that's the the hardest thing, especially if you're going into your, I'm going to be 30 next year, and my friends are getting married, some of them bring mortgages, and that's great, and I don't begrudge them that at all, but I have other things I want to do as well, because um, that's important for me, and you have to make a lot of sacrifices for that. I'm very, very lucky, and my parents are incredibly supportive, stupidly so, but, you know, not everyone is in as fortunate a position as I am, you know, there's a lot of stresses. But you just keep pushing through. So when I came back from Edinburgh, for example, I had no paid work. You look at this like expanse. Yeah, there's a massive no paid work, no writing, ah. and it was this horrible expanse. I mean, it was just this vast. So what did you do? Um, Cried, obviously. I ate lots of chocolate. You have to, well, I think at some point you have to have a breakdown. Um, but you just start doing work. You start making new things. You start chasing up paid work. So. I went and got a job in a bar for a while as much as I could just because I'm like, I want to have something I can go, I am a value, I am a worth. Because that's it as well, you want to be of worth. And a lot of it is your self, self-esteem is a huge part of it. And if you can get that to a good level, you can deal with all the stuff where you go to parties and people when they Don't go, the what do you question. do? And you go, oh, I, I work for Shell and I travel abroad and I, I drill in Australia and I have this house out there and I'm moving out next year. And you go, what do you do? He goes, oh, I'm a, I'm a writer. You just have to be like, you have to value your work and believe it is true. Because funnily enough, a lot of those people are like, oh, I wish I was doing that. The grass is always bloody green. It's always that, it's always that. Um, darling, if you were to give yourself one bit of advice, what would it be? Maybe back in the day, like, oh Christ. Uh, you know, what advice do you wish you'd been given? Um, my grandfather said, he said, there's, there's two things you should never give as presents, socks and advice. <laughs> so I'm reticent. So sweet. I'm reticent to give you it. give me a pair of socks instead of you, like. Um, I don't know, just, it will be okay, I think is, is a really big one, because I remember times, especially at drama school and stuff, you get to the lowest point of yourself. Um, Do you think that's part of it though, stripping it away, isn't it? Oh yeah, completely, like it's part of growing up. Like I think when you reach 60 and you look back in your life, you're like, I can't believe I was worried about that. But you know that whole phrase, you can't see the wood for the trees. Yeah, it's, it's really, all relative, isn't it? Yeah, that's very, very important. So I think it will be okay. And just also as well, if, if you don't like something, don't do it. There are ways out of it. Um, not everyone is perhaps as, because of their circumstances, whether they're social or economic or cultural or whatever, you. There are certain things that are harder to do or you just can't do, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. You know, there are ways to, to deal with it. It goes back full circle, actually, to what you were saying at the beginning about the change, about changing stuff. You know, you did invested time and money in the yeah. drama school thing and then actually... But I don't think any of that actually... I mean, it's all 
led up to this. Like it's, none of it was a waste. Nothing you do is a waste. I remember a really, really good bit of advice I was given by the writer Philip Ridley. And he said, um, you can never regret an action. You can only regret an inaction. That's a good bit of advice. It's not even mine. Um, but I <laughs> Take think the credit. That's absolutely true. You'll never regret the things you did. You'll regret the things you didn't do. You've been listening to Passion Pod number 43 with Tristan Bernays.